jumping back in from where we left off last Sunday. Let's read the first few verses together. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. We arrived in these verses last week, and as we unpacked them, we directed a lot of what we were unpacking towards our young people. This morning, as we approach the passage, we push on a little bit further into the passage, and we allow it to speak into our now moment as a church, and to speak to us as a people of God as a whole. These verses record for us, just wait for a bit of hush. These verses record for us an ordinary moment in which God turns up to Moses and interrupts his everyday life to reveal purpose. And last week we focused heavily upon the fact that Moses went to check on the burning bush and it was his checking out that led him into this supernatural encounter that saw him meeting the God of his ancestors and having a life-transforming experience of him. And our call to our young people last week was to check God out for themselves, to follow God, not because of family links or family ties, but to discover their own relationship and experience of him. And this morning, as we unpack it, we bring a bit of balance to that. According to our understanding of Moses, largely from Stephen's speech in Acts, we understand that the timeline of Moses, this encounter with the burning bush takes place 40 years, or after 40 years in Egypt, and after 40 years in Midian. And it takes place just before Moses is to spend 40 years as the leader of the people of Israel. Now the first 80 years of Moses' life gets just two chapters of scripture in Exodus. But the remaining 40 years of his life gets considerable airspace in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And that's quite significant. 80 years gets two chapters. The last 40 years gets books of reference. And that points two things out to us right off the bat. And the first is that Moses was two-thirds of his way through his life when God brought him into a life-transforming and life-altering experience. He was two-thirds of the way through his life when God brought to him revelations and insight that completely altered his thinking, transformed history, and impacted the life of an entire nation. And we began to unpack that. And last week as we unpacked it, we, we directed it all by saying, young people, you need to listen to this. And don't worry, we're not going to open it by saying, old people, turn up your hearing aid. But actually, I do believe that God would speak to those of us that would class ourselves as the older generation. And he speaks to us with these words. It's not too late. See, God is no respecter of age. And he's no respecter of stage of life. He doesn't write people off. 
or people out to pasture. There are no spiritual nursing homes in the kingdom. And he will never pension you off or dismiss you as irrelevant. Moses was two-thirds of the way through his life when he began his real adventure with God. And when he began his adventure, God didn't say to him, I want you to raise up and mentor the younger generation to accomplish my plan. He didn't say to him, here's what I'm going to do, but I'm going to accomplish it through the youth, so just sit back, watch, and learn, old boy. God didn't say to Moses, here's what my purposes are, but you're too old to accomplish them. It's youth and vitality I'm after. You're irrelevant in this time and age. No, here's what God said to Moses. He says, Moses, here's what I'm going to do, and I am going to do it through you. You have lived two-thirds of your life, Moses, but buckle up. I've got greatness in store for this next chapter. In fact, I'm going to accomplish more in this final section of your life than I have in all the years leading up to this moment combined. This next season is going to be crammed full of purpose and calling and accomplishing for me. This is going to be your greatest season. Now, when we look at this, by modern terms, we would recognize that Moses is past his midlife crisis. He is well and truly into his golden years. In fact, some might even say his twilight years. But in his twilight, God recruits him and commissions him with purpose. He gives him revelation. He gives him insight. He uses him to transform lives and to completely change circumstances because it's not too late with God. God doesn't put people out to pasture. So don't put yourself there. He is the God that controls the seasons of our lives. He writes every chapter of our story and that means it's not over till he says it's over. And that means we're not done till he says we're done. And often he calls us to a place not so much of retiring but of refiring and entering into what he's got next. Older generation, our younger generation needs you. Our church needs you. Please, don't put the weight of responsibility for revival and reformation upon the shoulders of our younger generation. Please don't place the burden of the future of the church upon the youth. Because God calls us all to work together. The age of the spirit that he called out had young men seeing visions and old men dreaming dreams. But what that means is that the church that God designs and calls into being is a church where all generations are manifesting the Holy Spirit together. You may be here and be at an age and stage of life where you think you've missed your chance or where you think maybe you've done your bit already. You've maybe come to faith at a later age and thinking if I came to faith at a younger age in my teens like everybody else, then I could have done great exploits for God. I've missed my chance. But let me tell you, let me encourage you, Moses was 80 when he found his God-given purpose. He was 80. He turned the world upside down at the grand old age of 80 years old when he was two-thirds of the way through his entire life's journey. He began his adventure with God in his latter years. Older generation, don't retire, re-fire. 
Maybe it's time to take yourself off of the scrap heap. Maybe it's time to bring your soul in from pasture because it is now time for the generations to work together and to partner with the Spirit of God for what he's got next. It's time. Time for the generations to stand side by side in the kingdom. It's not too late. It's not too late for God to stamp your life with purpose. It's not too late for God to release you into something significant. It's not too late to begin your adventure with God. His plan is that your latter years would be greater than all your other years combined. His plan is that your next season is your greatest season. It's not too late. Rise up and take your place. Stand up and be counted. Speak up and be a voice for God because it's time for the generations to stand side by side as the now generation that platforms God and showcases his reality to the world. It's time to stand up. The second thing that we call out from this here is the fact that Moses' first 80 years of existence gets just two chapters in Scripture, whereas his final 40 gets books upon books of Scripture. Shows that this moment in Exodus 3 is a threshold moment for him. It's a defining moment. This was a defining moment that changed the entire course of his life. A moment that defined who he was as a person, and what he was doing with his life. The burning bush was a game changer for Moses. And this life-changing, game-changing, defining moment was not one that he was prepared for. It was not one that he was expecting. <clears throat> he had by no means preempted or manufactured this moment. It just happened. God turned up in his world completely unannounced, completely unexpected and revealed purpose to him and changed his everything, which proves that actually the purpose of God is something that lays hold of us. Quite often when we talk about it, we talk about laying hold of the purpose of God, but actually the purpose of God is something that lays hold of us. His purpose takes hold of our life's journey. It takes hold of where we've been and what we've become. And it takes all of that and moves us and makes us all that God would have us be and all that he would call us to do. In Exodus chapter 3, we read the purpose of God laying hold of Moses. It took hold of who he was. It took hold of where he had been. It took hold of where he was going. It took hold of his dreams, of his visions, of his passions, his skills, his abilities, his efforts, his energies. It took hold of his identity, of his personal life, of his ambitions. It even took hold of his family and it brought radical change to all. Unexpected, unannounced, unprompted, God interrupted Moses' world and seized him with purpose. And changes everything. And this is not an uncommon thing that we see happening in the Bible. It wasn't, Moses, it wasn't Noah's ambition to build a floating zoo. He didn't say, I've got one ambition in life to build the biggest floating zoo in the world. It wasn't his ambition, it was the purpose of God. His purpose took hold of an ordinary guy, moved him, changed him, altered his future before his safari lifeboat Noah was a completely unknown entity. But having saved the human race in his wildlife cruise ship, the name Noah became renowned the world over. All across the globe for centuries, we've been telling his story because the purpose of God seized him and changed his everything. 
God's purpose took hold of Jacob when he was on the run. It took hold of Jonah and wouldn't let him go regardless of how much he tried to shake it off or hide from it. David was in the field looking after sheep when he was called to meet a random prophet who poured oil all over his head and announced him as king. He didn't ask for that. He didn't put his name forward or put his hand up asking to be picked. One minute he's with sheep and the next minute an old guy is drowning him in oil and announcing his coronation. God interrupted his life and his purpose took hold of him and changed him. Mary was a teenager who never asked to get pregnant with the Son of God. The angel interrupted her life and announced purpose, and purpose took hold of her and changed her everything, her dreams, her ambitions, her hopes, her desires. It seized her and took hold of every part of her. Jesus interrupted Peter's life with a miraculous catch of fish. He walked into the lives of individuals, and with the phrase, come follow me, the purpose of God took hold of the disciples' lives. Never did they imagine that they would be part of seeing the gospel go to the four corners of the world. Never did they imagine that they would be part of a global spiritual revolution or see what they saw or hear what they heard. Purpose laid hold of them. And the Apostle Paul, well, he was opposing those that were running with the purpose of God and God's purpose seized him and made him run with it. See, there's moments in life when God's purpose takes hold of us and brings change. We could try and fight it, and we can try and oppose it. We can try to run from it and hide from it. We can even try and shake it off and change it, but it's futile. It changes us. His purpose takes hold of us and changes who we are and where we've been and brings all of that into what God would have us be and where he would have us go and For us, that transformative moment with purpose all revolves around Jesus, doesn't it? That transformative experience all happens when we surrender our everything to Jesus. We find him. And you know what? For Moses, it was no different. Verse 2 says, There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses' encounter is with an angel that has appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. And of course, we immediately go to the description of the angel and we see it's not an angel of the Lord, it's the angel of the Lord. It's commonly understood that when the Old Testament talks about the angel of the Lord, it's referring to Jesus. So appearing to Moses in the flames of fire within the burning bush is none other than the second member of the Trinity. It's the Son of God. This is Jesus. And when you read the scripture and and you read the encounter, you can see that from the speech. That which is spoken from the angel of the Lord to Moses is not spoken as a message from God like the angel Gabriel delivers to Mary when he announces her purpose. Rather, this is spoken as God speaking directly to Moses. The manifest glory of the Godhead, Jesus Christ is before him. Now, the fact that this is Jesus is hugely significant. It opens up a whole new dimension to the passage. It allows us to view this in an entirely different way, interpret it and understand it in phenomenal ways. 
Centuries before Jesus walked the earth and transformed the world with his gospel. Centuries before he was born of the virgin, baptized in the Jordan, crucified in Golgotha, and ascended into heaven, leaving an empty grave in his wake. Centuries before Jesus took on flesh and made his dwelling amongst us, we see him here in this burning bush. The burning bush is in actual fact a prophetic beacon. A prophetic beacon that calls out, that announces, that prophesies Jesus and prophesies his ministry eons of time before it ever came to pass. For in this burning bush, we, we see the fingerprints of Jesus. We see his modus operandi. We see the hallmarks of Christ. And when you see the conversation between the angel of the Lord and Moses, we actually hear the call of Christ to his church. This is a phenomenal piece of scripture. Let's unpack it together briefly. The angel of the Lord appears to Moses in a bush. And Moses notices that though the bush is in fire, it doesn't burn up. I'm laughing because there's a typo in my notes and apparently the angel of the Lord turned up to Moses in a bus. So, but it's not a bus, it's a bush. Spell check, didn't get that one. And what he sees here, what catches his gaze, is that although the bush is on fire, the bush is not fueling the fire, it's hosting it. The bush is holding the fire. The fire is perfectly contained in the bush, and that's exactly what the text says. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And seeing this, Moses thinks, well, this is a bit strange. And the reason that this is strange is because the bush that is on fire, theologians reckon, is a wild acacia bush, which is commonly known or widely known for being dry and brittle. So for such a fush, uh, such a fush, there we go, <laughs> such a fush on a bus, come Holy Spirit, for such a bush to be on fire, but not consumed by the fire is not natural. It's supernatural. This bush is hosting something supernatural. A supernatural presence. It's the presence of God. Contained within this bush was the divine. And what Moses sees here is the divine presence of God, and he sees the divine presence of God within a natural form. This points to Jesus. Here is the first symbol of Christ, a prophetic picture. The angel of the Lord, the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, is encountered as a divine presence within a natural form. The Gospels teach us Jesus took on flesh and made his dwelling amongst us, and we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who comes from the Father, full of grace and truth. We see glory, the supernatural divine presence of God when Jesus took on flesh, a natural form. He was fully human, yet fully God. His body and his blood contained and hosted the divine presence of God on the earth. Jesus, the divine, took on flesh. He took on a natural form, and he manifested on earth to announce the intentions of God. That whosoever believes in him could have life. And here in Exodus 3, centuries earlier, the angel of the Lord, the second member of the Trinity, Jesus is seen. He comes down to earth for the explicit 
purpose of announcing the intentions of God. And how does he do it? How does he appear? He manifests as a divine presence within a natural form. And the natural form is an acacia bush, the bush that grew to a penny in the wilderness. This was a common bush. That which he chose to host his presence was common. It wasn't a grand tree. It wasn't an oak of splendor. It wasn't something magnificent. It was something common, something regular, something ordinary, something lowly. This is a prophetic beacon. This is a symbol of Jesus. It carries his fingerprints. He didn't enter this earth as a king or a ruler or a VIP or a person of influence. He came as a carpenter. He wasn't born in a palace or a royal hospital or an environment of splendor. He was born in a stable in the most unconventional way. He humbled himself. He took on flesh to communicate the purpose and to reveal, release, and realize the intentions of God upon the earth. And in Exodus, we see the divine presence of God in a lowly state humbly manifesting within that which is common, that which is unmajestic, presencing himself to reveal purpose. In this burning bush, we see Jesus, a very real revelation of Christ centuries before he was born. This burning bush, it points to Christ, it points to his gospel. The Christ who calls the poor and the lame, the unloved and the unlovely, the broken and the misfit, the ordinary, the regular, the everyday, and says, you know what? Here's the intention of God. My presence is going to take up residence within you and shape you with purpose. The gospel that says there's no slave nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Gentile. The gospel that isn't about status and identity and splendor. It's not about spotlight and fanfare and majesty and glitz and glamour. This gospel, this kingdom, this Christ is all about the divine presence transforming the ordinary. Manifesting in the everyday. Being found in the hearts of the regular. And releasing Revealing and realizing the intentions of God upon the earth. This burning bush is a prophetic beacon that points to the cause of Christ. The text continues. It says, There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was in fire, it didn't burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight why the bush doesn't burn up. When the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, Moses, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses has an encounter with God and with God's purpose, and what drew him into that was this supernatural sight. What caught his attention, what caused him to investigate and therefore to experience God was this miraculous manifestation of fire within the tree. And when God saw that he went to investigate, he called to him, Moses, Moses. He called him personally. He called him by name more than once. And the repetition of the name would have meant a lot to the ancient readers. Repetition in the scripture equaled emphasis. It was the equivalent of putting something in capital letters, bold type, and underlining it. 
suggests then a clear call, a, a, carrying, a clarion call, a, a bold shout, if you like. The repetition of his name suggests him being called to attention. His attention's been grabbed. But the repetition of the name also speaks of familiarity, affection, intimacy. And here again, we see the hallmarks of Christ in his gospel. Jesus comes to earth with the aim and objective of presenting the reality of God and raising an awareness of him. And he walks into towns and villages, cities and synagogues, and he grabs the attention of people. He grabs the attention of crowds, of multitudes. And how does he grab their attention? Through supernatural signs and miraculous manifestations. It's with signs and wonders that he presents the reality of God. It's through miracles that he brings to the awareness of vast multitudes of people the very real presence of a very real God. And reading through the scripture, reading through the gospels, we can see Jesus calling crowds to attention, stopping people dead in their tracks with demonstrations of the kingdom. And as he grabbed their attention, he then called to them, inviting them collectively, individually, to know God intimately, to know him affectionately. His gospel approach was to demonstrate the kingdom and to declare the kingdom. Please, God, that we would get back to Jesus' gospel approach. He presented the reality of God to individuals, and then he called for individuals to make God a reality in their lives. That was his model. That was his ministry. And here in Exodus, Jesus is manifest in the burning bush as the angel of the Lord. And as he does so, Moses' attention is grasped, is seized. And that which grabs his attention is this miraculous manifestation, this supernatural sight. And with his attention caught, God then introduces himself to Moses. He then invites him on an adventure of pursuing purpose. Jesus in this bush demonstrates his reality and declares his reality. And here is the gospel. The gospel that we embrace, the kingdom that we belong to is one that is entirely supernatural and completely miraculous in its manifestation and its administration and in its purpose. It is a gospel and a kingdom that grabs the attention of souls. It draws the souls of men and women in the most supernaturally way possible. It is through the movement and the ministry of the supernatural spirit of God that souls are grasped. And attention is grabbed and eyes of hearts are opened. And people from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds, all different experiences, despite being incredibly diverse and different, are supernaturally brought to a place of knowing God and pursuing His purpose. Do you know, looking around this room today, we see a profound supernatural act. It is so incredibly supernatural that a room filled with people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different nationalities, different experiences, different walks of life are all one in Christ Jesus. It's a supernatural, miraculous act of God that has brought us to this place. We're all different and probably outside Christ would not be hanging around, but inside Christ we're one together united in him. This is a foreshadow of the gospel, this 
Christ is prophetically seen in the phenomenon of the burning bush. The fingerprints of Jesus are all over this moment. Something supernatural draws his soul, and he's introduced to God and begins an adventure of purpose. That's the gospel. As Moses explores the burning bush, God calls to him. And Moses said, here I am. And God said, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. God calls to him and Moses says, here I am. And his response isn't so much of a, you found me. It's not like a game of hide and seek where he goes, Moses, where are you? And he's like, here I am. But rather what we read is a declaration of surrender. Confronted by the reality of God, Moses surrenders his everything to him. Do you know, when we encounter and experience the reality and the power of God, our only option is to surrender our everything to him. And in response to Moses' surrender, God gives to him instruction. And he gives to him revelation. And the instruction is this, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. God tells him to remove his sandals. Now, there's many layers to this. The obvious understanding is that the removal of sandals speaks of reverence and worship. In biblical times, as in times today and circles today, the removal of footwear is an integral part of worship and it's a sign of reverence and respect. This instruction to remove the sandals is accompanied with the reason why they have to be removed, and the reason is because Moses is standing on holy ground. And the ground is holy because God is there. He is holy, and where he is is holy. Accompanied by the announcement of holiness comes an instruction to worship and an instruction to revere. And we find a similar scene accompanying the presence of Jesus elsewhere in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the Lord seated on the throne in the train of his robe, filling the temple with glory. And we're told in the Gospels that what Isaiah is seeing here is Jesus. So he, like Moses, he experiences the pre-incarnate Christ. And immediately upon finding himself in the presence of Jesus, Isaiah, like Moses, is confronted by the holiness of God. And what brought this confrontation was the living creatures crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And we have to understand that here, the same as in Revelation chapter 4, the holiness of God has not just been announced, but the holiness of God has been worshipped. Revelations of holiness move the heart to worship. We can't help but worship when we encounter the holiness of God. And this is seen in the actions of Moses. Moses is confronted by the announcement of the holiness of God and is immediately brought into a posture, brought into an act of worship. He removes his sandals in response to the holiness of God, an act that is associated with reverence, an act that is associated with worship. He receives this revelation of the holiness of God and then he worships the God whose holiness he has encountered. Here again is the gospel. Here is the prophetic call of Christ. When we step 
into an awareness of our sin in comparison to the perfect holiness of God, when we glimpse His grace, that He, the sinless Son of God, took our sin upon Himself so that we could receive His righteousness and become like Him. When we see His holiness, we cannot help but worship Him. When we are captured by the greatness of God and everything that makes Him supreme and one of a kind, we cannot help but worship Him. So embracing the gospel of Christ is actually to embrace a life of worship. It's to live our entire lives in accordance to His Word, transformed by His grace, living in countercultural ways that our very stance, our very journey through this life is one consistent act and posture of worship. A posture and an approach that reflects who He is. A posture and an approach that calls out to the world everything that makes God one of a kind and a cut above all of the rest. The call of the gospel, the call of Christ to his church, is that we live our lives with such a stance and such a posture that we are constantly calling out, constantly reflecting the great paradox that the God who is holy and pure and perfect chooses to presence himself with us and is present with us. That moves the heart to worship. He is pure and perfect in every way. But He chooses to presence Himself in us and to realize His intentions and purpose through us within the world. What an incredible God He is. But the removal of sandals speaks of something else. There are other places where the removal of sandals is called for in the Scripture. If you remember in the Gospels, Jesus gave his disciples the instructions. When you enter a home or a town, let your greeting or let your peace rest there. But if they reject you, shake the dust off your feet. Now, one would assume that to shake the dust off your feet, you would have to take your sandals off and shake them out. And the shaking of dust off of your feet was a sign of rejection, or that's the way that we view it. But in actual fact, I don't think that's the way that Christ meant it. I think what he was saying was this. If a town or a village don't accept you, shake the dust of that village off of your feet. Do not carry any dust of that village with you on your journey. Do not carry the culture of that village with you. Do not pick up anything and carry it with you on your forward journey. Don't allow it to impact your walk. Don't carry anything from that place onwards. Don't carry the hurt. Don't carry the pain. Don't carry the insults, the wounds, the rejections. Don't carry failure or disappointment. Do not let anything influence you in the next chapter in the next season of your journey. Now bring that into Moses. The first 80 years of Moses' life were far from conventional. The first 40 years he was raised in a family environment that was not fully his own. He would therefore, as we in fact read of him, struggle to come to grips with his identity and what his identity actually was. That struggle sees him murder an Egyptian and as his identity crisis works its way out in his actions and in his behavior, the shame and the guilt and the embarrassment of what he has done causes him to run. He runs and he spends the next 40 years trying to hide from his actions, battling his inner demons of guilt and condemnation, that sense of failure and pain and shame that haunted him. 
And as he encounters Jesus, he is told, Moses, take off your sandals. It's almost as though God is saying, enough, Moses. All that shame, all that guilt, all that failure, pain, and condemnation, it stops here. There's a line in the sand. You're not going to carry any of this, Moses, with you on the journey of purpose. As you surrender in the place of purpose, I'm going to change your walk, and I'm going to change the way that you walk. And that is the gospel. We come to Christ in our pain and our rejection, carrying shame and condemnation, battling with guilt and fear and the various inner demons that we all have. And if we say, no, I don't have any inner demons, then there's your one right there. It's called lying. When we come to him with all of that stuff, Jesus' blood announces over us, enough. It stops here. There's a line in the sand. Because if anyone is in me, the old is gone and the new has come. You're a new creation. There's no guilt or condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Enough. It stops. Take off your shoes. Shake it out. Lay it down. Don't carry any of that culture from the past with you. Don't carry any of that baggage with you on the journey of my purpose. Don't carry anything from your old life into the new life that I am shaping out for you. Enough. It stops here. We see Christ and his gospel right here in this moment. You can actually take it further because the book of Ruth says this. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So here we see that the removal of a sandal symbolized a transaction. It represented an exchange. The burning bush, God tells him, take off your sandals. God exchanged Moses' surrender for his plan and his purpose. At the burning bush, Moses exchanged who he was for who God was calling him to be. The burning bush, the manifestation of the divine within the natural form, the manifestation of Jesus upon the earth, announcing purpose, was in actual fact a place of divine exchange. And this then is a prophetic beacon that calls out the intention of Christ's gospel and the power of the cross, because the cross of Christ is a place of divine exchange. It's where we exchange our sinful nature for the righteousness of God. It's where we exchange who we are for who he's calling us to be. It's where we surrender our lives for the plan and the purpose of God. This is what Jesus does because this is who he is. In Christ, we exchange sorrow for joy, death for life, pain for wholeness, sickness for healing. In Christ, we exchange darkness for light, captivity for freedom, condemnation for peace, guilt for salvation, rejection for acceptance. In him, we exchange our life for his life to live in the fullness of who he is. This moment in Exodus is a prophetic beacon that calls out Christ, his ministry, his approach, his gospel that is yet to come. And as Moses comes to the point of divine exchange, something quite profound happens. It says there that God spoke to him and said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. We don't have time to unpack 
that phrase fully. So let me paraphrase as we come into land. As Moses encounters the angel of the Lord, he has a revelation of God who says to him, I am God, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. As he encounters the angel of the Lord, he has a revelation of God. This points to Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the door. I am the gate. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. In fact, if you obey my commands, the Father and I are going to come and live in you. He is the access point to a revelation of God, to a revelation of the Father. In him, we experience God and live with him as a reality in our lives. When Moses had this revelation, it says he hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. This hiding of the face is an act that we see throughout the Scripture that is normally attached to a manifestation of the glory of God. Where people hide their faces, turn their faces away, fall on their faces. So in this moment, as there comes this declaration of who God is, there comes a manifestation of His glory. And again, that's a pattern that we see. And a few chapters later in Exodus, if you, if you remember, Moses says, show me your glory. And God hides him behind the rock and he shows him his glory. How? By passing by in front of him and declaring who he is. The Lord, slow to anger and compassionate and abounding in love. In the gospel, they come to arrest Jesus. And Jesus says, who is it you're looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And they all fell over. Why did they fall over? Because with the declaration of who God is comes the revelation, the manifestation of glory. Moses in this moment has a declaration of who God is and there comes a manifestation of glory as points to Christ. In Christ, the veil has been torn in two. We have access to boldly approach the throne of grace to enter into the holy of holies, to experience his glory as royal priests. In fact, we're told that we are changed to become more and more like him from one experience of glory to the next. In Jesus, we have access to the manifest presence and glory of Jesus. As Moses encountered the angel of the Lord, he had an experience of glory. This points to Christ and his gospel. When we encounter him and surrender our everything to him, we have access to the presence and glory of God. But of course, what is particularly interesting is that this declaration that comes is I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. The declaration, this revelation was framed within the covenant. I am the covenant-keeping God. I'm the God that made the covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And of course, Moses would go on to be the architect of the covenant that God made with Israel. He encounters the angel of the Lord and he encounters the God of the covenant. This points to Jesus who came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And in his body and with his blood, he established a whole new covenant 
He became the mediator of the new covenant, and in him we have access to the new covenant of God. That means we can go anywhere in the world and function under his protection. We can be in any situation and always have access to his presence. We can know that we are forgiven and redeemed, sealed for eternity because of what Christ established through the covenant. This moment is a prophetic beacon. This burning bush actually for us is a type of Christ that points us to the Jesus and to his ministry and to his gospel. And Moses had this phenomenal revelation at 80 years old. God was not done with him yet. God released him into his greatest adventure. People of God, I really do believe that God wants to communicate very specifically. Bring yourself in from pasture. Take yourself off the scrap heap. It's not too late. I want to release you into your greatest adventure. It's time for the generations to stand side by side. But as we bring that into where we are as a church, in a few years' time, this church is going to celebrate 100 years of ministry in Glasgow. 100 years of ministry, seeing some incredible things. But that doesn't mean that our time has been and gone. And that doesn't mean that our opportunity has taken place and that's it. He hasn't put us out to pasture. Our greatest adventure is right before us. In fact, the next season is going to be greater than all the previous seasons put together. He's calling us into something hugely significant. And as we approach that, we need to take off our sandals. Church, we need to come into these moments when we gather like we just have and remove our sandals and surrender our everything in passionate, extravagant worship of Him. We need to gather around the holiness and the greatness of God and get on our faces before Him and seek Him and adore Him and love upon Him and throw ourselves upon Him if we want to enter into this next season. We still are on our threshold moment, aren't we? This is a defining moment for us. We've got to throw ourselves on God and allow His purpose to lay hold of us. And that is a surrender. It's not about us coming and saying, here's what the purpose is, and we're grabbing it, and we're holding on to it, and we're decreeing and claiming it, and all that stuff. It's about, actually, here we are. Seize us with your purpose. Whatever you want it to be, wherever it is you want us to go, we're taking off the sandals, and we're coming flat on our faces and saying, here we are, God. Reveal your glory to us. But also, if we're removing our sandals, then maybe it means we need to shake the dust off from some of the past seasons. Maybe we need to be willing to lay down some of the stuff from past cultures, individually, corporately. We need to shake some of that out. And we need to lay that down and come to the place of divine exchange where we're saying, okay, God, here we are, a church in Govan Hill. We're exchanging all that we've got and all that we are for all that you have and all that you have in store. This is your house and we give you permission to come and live in it, whatever way you like.